Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, and welcome back to Loved As You Are, an Ignatian podcast with me, Gretchen Crowder. I am so glad you are here. Fall is speeding by so quickly. I cannot believe it is already the first few days of October. In fact, I feel a little bad that I did not get this episode out to all of you during September because my guest, Jean Heaton, is speaking about what it means to be loved as you are, particularly in the context of addiction. September was Addiction Awareness Month, but as anyone who has battled an addiction or loves someone who has battled an addiction knows, the necessity for awareness exceeds far beyond a single month. So in that case, maybe it's a good thing that I'm just getting this episode to you now. Jean Heaton is a blogger, writer, speaker, teacher, and a workshop and retreat leader. Both her husband and son are in long-term recovery, and she has worked her own 12-step program for those affected by the addictions of others. She shares her experience, strength, and hope with others at jeanheaton.com which I will link in the show notes. This is such an important conversation. It is such a necessary conversation. I'm glad you are here to take this journey alongside Jean and I as we wrestle with what it means to be loved as we are, no matter what. You won't want to miss a minute. So here we go. Jean, I just told my listeners that we first met through another one of my guests. Uh, I can't remember if it was episode nine or 10, but Christiane Squires was my guest that, that we met through and her book writing courses. And then we were both founding members of the Lighthouse that she now runs. I know we both try to be active in there. It's difficult sometimes with the many things that we have going on. But I remember calling you very early on to chat about book writing. I actually can't remember how I got your number, but you were finishing up your book and I was researching all that went into writing a book, even though I still haven't written one. And I wanted to pick your brain on that process. It feels like that conversation was just yesterday, but I think it's been, I don't know, four or five years of knowing you remotely. So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you for for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. It's it's just always good to uh, talk about this topic that isn't talked about. We need to uh, turn a light on the problem of addiction. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. 
Yes. And that topic fits so well, I think, with this idea of being loved as we are in all the different facets of who we are. I'd like to mention your book right up front by telling you that in one of my classes, well, in both of the classes that I'm in right now, I have discussion postings. And in a couple of those, classmates mentioned 12-step programs being a part of their lives. And I felt like I was your, I don't know, seller, like that I I was getting a commission because I was like, oh, there's this great book. We're talking about Ignatian spirituality (laughs) and 12 steps. And you may never have heard of it, but if you want to check it out, here's a great way to incorporate what you're learning in class with the 12 steps that you are familiar with. Right. So yeah, you may get a couple sales off of that. I don't know. Or they may think I'm crazy because it's only like week one and they're like, she's trying to sell us her friend's book. But uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your book, the title, where it comes from, what the inspiration was? Sure. The title is Helping Families Recover from Addiction Using the 12 Steps and Ignatian Spirituality as practices to help families recover. It came about because I experienced family addiction in uh, an adult child and rocked my world and I didn't want to do anything wrong. I felt like, you know, I'd already messed up plenty with where we found ourselves to be. And so I was told to go to a 12-step meeting and I did. I did everything they told me to do. But, um, you know, they used some language around naming God that as a convert made me uncomfortable because I just didn't know. And I wanted to make sure I didn't do anything wrong. So I started researching the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And specifically, I put in my browser, history of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Catholic Church, just to see if I would get any hits. And I did uh, in a Jesuit priest named Ed Dowling. And so I started learning about the common themes that ran between the 12 steps and Ignatian spirituality. It it took a long time because I am a convert. I didn't even know who the Jesuits were. I didn't know who Ignatius of Loyola was. And so it was a long process of learning and trying to dig out. And it was a spirituality that I just kind of fell in love with. It, It felt so organic and natural, and it did fit in with the 12 steps. And so those two practices really became lifelines to our family and still practice them today and probably will always practice. Yeah. So I I find it so interesting that, you know, I often ask guests who are familiar with Ignatian spirituality where they first came to know it. It's so interesting that the reason you came to know it is simply because the Catholic that was writing about this connection between the 12 steps and Ignatian spirituality and right. Catholicism was a Jesuit, right? And so right. there is that opportunity to say, oh, who are you? And it's just so interesting because everybody has a different way in to what Ignatian spirituality is. But once we discover it, we find such great connections to our real life experience, which is seemingly what you found enough to to be able to write a whole book about it. So, <laughs> well, you know, desperation, <laughs> desperation is, is the good, is a good um, reason to just dig in and find out everything, you know, you need to know because lives were on the line, literally. And, and it was a desperation. I read everything I could get my hands on and learned everything that I could learn and uh, did all the things they told me to do until it became something that was understandable and applicable and life-giving. Yeah. So you said at the beginning when you were talking about 
the language that was being used at the 12 step meetings about God and, and, and how you understood God, who do you understand God to be now? How has that idea formed, especially that you've been through this exploration process? That's a really interesting question. I, I have kind of a story behind who, how I see God now, especially relative. Uh, let me give you the starting point, the, the way I saw God. You know, in the beginning, I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist home with a very religious grandmother who was very strict, who used to warn me, you know, God won't like it if you do this or if you do that. And so quite intentionally, I'm sure she didn't change my behavior as much as she changed the image that I held of God. And it made him really distant and punishing. And, you know, I just didn't really want to get too close because I was pretty sure that whatever it was I was doing was going to fall short. You know, as I began the recovery process, because families have to recover too. And as I began that process, I was really called on the mat of, you know, who is the God of your understanding? So I took that language that I was afraid of and started using it to expand the idea that I had of God. So who is the God of your understanding? Is he really a higher power or, or are you the God of your understanding? You know, so that, that really helped me to challenge what I had been thinking, to become aware of what I'd been holding all these years. I will say that I had an experience about a year and a half ago that really changed the way I saw God. And it was, uh, I went to an open AA speaker meeting and those meetings are where the speaker gets up and tells their story. This is how it was. This is what happened to make a change. And this is how things are now, that your regular three act play. And that's that, that people share their story. And I don't remember this person's story so much, but I listened. And when it was over, I dig it into my purse to see if I'd missed any calls or anything. And, and the meeting goes through this process where they, they start giving out chips. And the first chip they give out is what's called a desire chip. Is there anyone here that has a desire to quit drinking? You know, they can be having, a, they can have a bottle in their car before they walk into the meeting. And if they have a desire, they can get that chip. And then they go to 30 days and 60 days and 90 days and then to annual medallions. And so they were doing all that. I wasn't paying attention. I pulled out my phone to look. And all of a sudden, I hear the room erupt. I looked at my husband and I was like, what in the world? And he said, uh, that's Jane Doe. And I said, so? And he said, so she's got enough desire chips to fill a shoebox. Meaning she's tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed. And here's a room full of people who are giving her a standing ovation for trying again. And it just gripped me. It was, there is nowhere else in this world where you see the scriptures in real time. In real time, I saw the prodigal son in scripture. In real time, I saw Jesus going back for the least and the lost. I mean, in real time, I saw the image of God change for me because she was a mess and they were fist bumping and cheering and doing all the things I think we're supposed to be doing. But I saw it live and it really changed me and it changed the image that I hold of God. So that's that's who, how I see God now. 
Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because when I think of the prodigal son story, I always think it has a nice, neat ending, right? The son gets welcomed home and and we just see this reconciliation moment. But then it could happen that the next day he leaves again, right? And then he comes home again. And so to really think about that idea that all these stories in the gospel only show you really a glimpse of the interactions. And if you think about the fact that God's response would be the same every time, and it would always be magnanimous love and welcome and taking you at as you are in that moment uh, and celebrating you. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. I know that is probably a story that many people have witnessed over time, right? So those that have mm-hmm. attended AA meetings probably can say, oh, no, I've, I've seen that too, or I've been a part right. of that too. So but it's very uh, moving when you're mm-hmm. experiencing it, you know, in real time. Yeah, it's such a sense of community, I imagine, of, of people that all really understand this one facet of themselves, right, that they all have right. in common, but then they also get to hear each other's stories and know there's all these other things that are different between right. them. There's all right. these there's, other wonderful things about them. So, Yeah, just a lot of humility in, in those rooms. So how do you think your concept, well, I think I know, but is there a way that you can put to to words how your idea of God fits with this idea of being loved as you are. I mean, I think your story encapsulated it, but I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Well, you know, I think learning to trust and it, it didn't like, I didn't just stumble upon this one story and it changed me. I mean, there were lots of little changes along the way, little things that would happen where I would just say, okay, what do I do now? And a thought would come into my mind. And so I've I've realized over time how loving God is. He really does want to help us when we're lost and confused, but also in our joys, because, you know, sometimes I'll pray and I'll have what I think is a desire of my heart, you know, but I want to be sure, is it really, is it authentic? You know, go through the discernment process. Is this really something that I think is God's will for my life? You know, just seeing how gracious he is in fulfilling dreams when they align with his will. It's just been a wonderful, I mean, I'm sorry that it took this family problem to bring me into relationship with God in this way, but I'm also grateful for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm at the early stages of of being a mom. I have three young kids um, and your, your kids grown, but it's amazing how you're children are often the ones that kind of break things open for you. I look back at maybe what I imagined having children would be or who my children would be. And and none of that is true, right? They're (laughs) as imperfect and as messy as I am, but they're also, you know, incredibly beautiful too. But I feel like we don't really know ourselves uh, until we're adults. And those of us that have children, we, we really find out who we are through them and and through these situations, right? Yes, yes. I think there's a, you know, about iron being, the impurities of iron being burned away. I think about that relative to my children because, you know, they certainly help you be honest with yourself, you know, and find truth because they, they just do, you know, they're little truth tellers, so. Yeah, and you often see that you're working on some kind of quote unquote, imperfection in in your child, but really it's like a mirror back at you of like, 
things you didn't know about yourself until you were experiencing them with another person. So you came to know Ignatian spirituality through your interactions and through your story with AA and and being a mom and supporting your family. How did the elements of Ignatian spirituality fit in with this concept of AA? What are some of the elements that that really resonate very well with the 12-step program? It took me a little while to figure out, you know, what the commonalities were, what the parallels were. And finally, I asked myself, what is it that these two things do to heal people? That what, what do they do to help a person find recovery? And it occurred to me that they're really both about relationships to God, self, and others. They both follow that, you know, the 12 steps, the first three steps are about your relationship to God. I think that the principle and foundation is when you when you've worked those three steps, you've accomplished the principle and the foundation. They, they really are hand in hand. Then steps four through six are about your relationship to what I call my essential self. It, it's the self that God created that before I messed it up, you know, the one that I thought, well, maybe it should look like this to fit in or it should behave this way to be worthy, you know, all the things we do to kind of mess up that essential self. And so the fourth through the sixth step help us get back to that. And then steps seven through nine help us to heal our relationships with other people. And then the last three steps are about maintaining those relationships. So, you know, I mentioned the principle and the foundation and the Two standard meditation, which I think is so good also for helping us. I mean, it's easy to say, you know, I'm going to follow God and not the enemy. And our words and our actions need to align. So that two standard meditation is really good at helping keep us honest. And honesty is a big part of the recovery movement. You know, if you're not honest, you're not going to get better. So some of the tools of Ignatian spirituality help you stay honest. Then we go on to in those maintenance steps. Step 10 is taking a daily inventory. Well, that's, you know, the examine prayer. I mean, it's really astonishing how very similar these two practices are. You know, uh, if I want to know how to be my essential self, I study how Jesus behaved, you know, in the world. So where the 12-step program is lacking, Ignatian spirituality kind of fills in those gaps and vice versa. So uh, it's really been a gift to have both of these practices to use. Yeah. And, and I think that I've mentioned the first principle and foundation before. For my listeners who aren't familiar with a couple of those things, the first principle and foundation is really the opening exercise of the spiritual exercises, which asks really some difficult things of those entering the retreat to say, trying to establish this indifference, this ability to be okay with whatever decision that God is leading you to, instead of holding on tightly to what you want in your life. It's probably not the most adequate description, but a a small description of that. And then the two standards is another meditation in the exercises where you're asked to look at, am I standing on the side of Christ or am I standing on the side of the world, really being connected to those worldly interests, as opposed to, again, what, what God is wanting for us. And I think what's so beautiful about both of those is that It doesn't say that the world is all bad. The world is not bad or the things of the world are not bad. It's when we have a disordered attachment to something 
which in your experience with the 12 step program, that's often thought of as like drugs or alcohol, but we all have disordered attachments to something, right? And all the steps you just said seem like we could all use times to go through those for the various things that we hold fast to whether it's our opinions or our selfishness or other things that, you know, people have addiction to as well. I don't know if that resonates with your experience. That it does. It universal. does. It does. I think everybody is addicted to something. I, just what you said. And, and, and it's not, you don't just take my word for it. There's a, a physician named Gerald May who wrote a book called Addiction and Grace. And he, you know, firmly believes that we're all addicted to something. And I mean, he has listen, listen, list, And it's basically anything that you choose to feel better with that, that isn't God. You know, when you're putting any sort of thing, an action or a substance, anything that you use rather than going to God with the things that are hurting you inside. Yeah. Is it also, or am I incorrect to say anything that distracts you from really dealing with whatever it is that you need to deal with, right? Whether that's looking at those elements of yourself that you don't want to see or you're, you're uncertain about or dealing with a relationship that might not be good at the time. Like those are the things that we often will find something to like block ourselves from, from dealing with those emotions. So an interesting fact is that opiates don't take away pain. They take away your awareness of pain. And so that's what we're doing when we scroll our phones, when we binge watch something, when we do drugs or alcohol or overeat or shop or, you know, any of the many, many, many things that we choose to distract ourselves. One of the 12 step uh, ideas is that we become aware and then we accept what is and then we can change with action. So it's kind of that three tiered process, awareness, acceptance and action. And Ignatian spirituality really does those same three things. If you think about it. Do you think that one of the reasons why we we all have kind of an addiction to something we want to kind of numb whatever uh, experiences is because of this uncertainty of ourselves that we don't really know if we're loved as we are, like, I know that's the title of my podcast, but I also feel like I have a lot of these conversations to remind myself of that truth, but also that we have trouble loving ourselves as we are as much as, you know, maybe we can accept that God may love us as we are, but to love ourselves as we are is, is a really challenging thing too. No, I, I totally agree with that. And it's, it's hard to see and understand in the beginning, but you know, that experience, that story that I told you in the beginning, one of the things that I noticed when I realized that that's that room, the behavior of that room was probably more in line with the way that God loved me than I'd ever understood before. When that clicked, the next thing that I thought was, well, I'm okay. Because if God is that way, then I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. And um, I do think we have trouble because we're imperfect people born to imperfect people and in an imperfect world. And, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to accept that sometimes. 
So I know beyond writing the book, you you do some other work with families and with retreats. Can you tell us a little bit? Because I think it fits into one of my questions. That's how do you help people understand their belovedness? And I think one of the ways that you try to do that is through your retreat work and, and other things right. that you do. Right. I, I do do retreats. And, and I do them on various steps and then whatever parallels Ignatian spirituality aligns with that. Like sometimes I'll do the first three steps and uh, step one just says that, you know, I'm powerless. Uh, and, and it makes me recognize that maybe I've been trying to be the God of my understanding. Uh, and, and that was surprising to me in the beginning. But that's one of the gifts of the three steps is that it points out many times we're trying to run our own show. And it doesn't usually work out too well. And so we finally get to the place where we're powerless. And so that's when we can, you know, say, but there is a power that's greater than you. And for Christians um, who have gone to church their whole life, they often want to skip over step two. Oh, I've got step two. I know God. And so one of the things that I suggest to them is, okay, well, let's heal the image of God that you hold. Let's use step two to heal that image. One of the scriptures that I use is is when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, you know, who do they say that I am? You know, when he's referring to the crowd, who do they say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And I just ask people to reflect on those two things. Who were you taught consciously and unconsciously? And did it align with what you read in scripture? But then compare that to who you know God to be in your own personal relationship, you know, and just to to really become aware of what it is. Is there some reason that it's hard to trust God with our loved ones? You know, so I do, I do do retreats. I speak in different places, mainly because uh, addiction is such a stigmatized topic. And um, I think that the more we talk openly about it, the, the less that stigma uh, can sting. We've conflated the term secret and anonymous. Uh, anonymous is always good to not out a person unless they want to be outed, but we can't hide the secret. You know, we have to talk about it. We have a lot of problems with um, mental illness, which goes right along with addiction and suicide. Those three things are, you know, often co-occurring when there's a problem. The more we can talk about it, take away the the mystery and the fear, um, the more people are going to be willing to reach out for help. Yeah. And I think that especially the topic of mental illness is is becoming and mental health in general is just becoming bigger in in secular circles. Right. People are talking about it. People are mentioning that they're going to therapists. People are you know, advertising, mm-hmm. talking about, you know, what they've learned. And so in that way, that's that's really wonderful that like it is a big topic of conversation and people see it and it, it isn't as um, a foreign anymore. But combining that with faith, combining that with religion, right. combining that with Catholicism, that's the thing where more, I think, needs to be said and more yes. needs to be put together and in more resources like like the book that you've written that just kind of say, how does my faith uh, respond to issues of mental health that I may have? Or how does my faith respond to addictions that me or other members of 
you know, my family are facing. I found that even learning my kids had learning differences and hearing loss, um, just having those kind of things that were slightly out of my experience as a, as a child myself, well, not completely out of my experience, but um, I just know. But when I look at those things and then look for the church to help me with them, I, I don't see as much on those things like how, of course, Jesus heals, you know, a blind man or makes a deaf man here. But like, that's not what I'm looking for completely. I'm, I'm looking for, tell me about how, how we serve all people and how we meet them where they are and that God loves them as they are and created them as they are. And, and there's, you know, a beauty of having everyone as a part of our community. I don't know if that resonates with your experience as well, but the secular resources are sometimes easier to find than the ones within our faith. Well, I mean, really, that is uh, an area that's very close to my heart because, uh, you know, one of the things that I tell people is that when I realized my son had a problem with an addiction, I knew two things instinctively. And, And I don't know how I knew these, but, you know, I knew that his addiction was a spiritual problem. I just knew it into my bones. And that was confirmed later on, you know, in some of the research I did. Uh, But the second thing that I knew was that I could not take this problem to my parish. I knew I couldn't go there. I reached out to my parish priest and he was wonderful, but it was a secret that we held between each other. So the burden was still there. I can't tell you how many people that I talk to that feel that same weight of but if my child had cancer, I would go to my parish and they would they'd be praying for me. They'd be, you know, bringing us dinner if we needed it. But the people that suffer with something that's, you know, not common, that's not a mental health issue, you know, they're supported. And uh, I think that part of it is that we have this illusion that we see the people in the pews and we think their lives must be perfect. You know, I think it's just going to take time um, to where we we start sharing a little bit more of ourselves if we can uh, work to understand what addiction is. We can understand uh, a way that we can help others. I mean, it can be as simple as just praying for them or accompanying them. You know, you don't have to do anything to fix anybody. And we, we learned that in recovery right off the bat. But just stand shoulder to shoulder. And uh, pray with them. That, that's an easy way to start. And to learn about the disease. You know, there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of uh, poorly informed ideas around addiction. Yeah. yeah. All the things that are invisible to us, there seems to be poorly formed ideas around in terms of, like you said, if if someone's sitting in the pews and looks like they're have no problems in the world and everything, but there's so much going on inside of them. And, and there are things that, that we just need to talk about more in order to make people feel like they can tell their stories that they cannot, you know, feel ashamed by bringing things up in a church setting where it's not a meeting where everybody has the same thing they're bringing up, but it's just a meeting of people, right? Or a Bible study where you can share, you know, the things that are going on in your life and feel like that would be okay, right? Right. Um, I, I even think, I even think that the churches that allow the AA and Al-Anon meetings 
to to meet in their building, you know, just seeing that they're just average people showing up at these meetings. I think that's good for the parish, you know, as much as anything. So yeah, it's just getting closer, you know, just getting closer and not being afraid of the problem. Yeah, a distance um, definitely breeds fear and all sorts of things. What you don't see and what you don't know personally, you have this tendency to be either afraid of it or uncertain about it. And so, yeah, the more conversations that we can have in the context of faith, um, the better. You said earlier your your image of God changed and you had to heal your image of God. Do you feel like often it's not just the people around us that we're afraid to bring up what's going on, but also afraid that that's something that God doesn't like, or that, you know, we have to repent for whatever it is, you know, and that we feel like God is judging us just as much as people around us. Right. Right. So I, I I mean, that's why it's so important for families to get into recovery because, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed is that, you know, my son didn't start getting better until I got better. When I finally got out of his business and I let his journey with God be his journey with God and I started working on mine, he started getting better. And that's kind of the miracle of the program is that when you can start trusting your loved one to God, all kinds of good things can happen. You know, but you have to let go. Yeah. And uh, I know I find as a mom, not only do my kids show me exactly my worst qualities all the time, but it is true that when I'm not working on those myself, then I'm not helpful to them. But also when they witness me trying to be better in those areas, I think that example is often even more impactful to them than if I'm telling them the right way to be right. Because we have to show by our example. Yeah. It's what they tell writers show, don't tell, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And and Ignatius even said, um, you know, he who wants to change the world must start with himself or he loses his labor. So I try to hang on to that quote. How did writing this book help you come to know yourself better? Was that part of oh. the, the deal? <laughs> <laughs> it was a big part of the deal. It was a lot of uh, introspection, a lot of, I had a lot of really good guidance because the acquisitions editor at uh, Loyola, uh, his name is Joe Deripos, and he uh, he told me he didn't want a memoir. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was offended at first, but um <laughs> But he Joe was very blunt. It's good. <laughs> he was very blunt. And he said, you know, you need to write a book that'll help people because, you know, a lot of people go through a lot of hard things and they need to write it down for themselves, but it doesn't need to be for public consumption. So if that's what you need to do, that's for you. But if you want to write a book that'll help somebody, then that's another thing altogether. And he was right. The book helped me not to tell anybody's story but mine which made me focus on the work I needed to do. And uh, that was really helpful to me, you know, because I'm the only person I can change. Yeah. How are the chapters set up? Because I assume since you didn't write a memoir, you didn't just tell your story. Um, (laughs) Practical ways, I guess, for people to engage with Ignatian spirituality and each of the steps. 
So there are 12 chapters for the 12 steps. And in each chapter, it's it's very story-driven. Story so each chapter, I tell stories because I the goal, my dream with this book, I thought about the mom like myself who was upstairs in her bonus room ruminating in the middle of the night because she couldn't sleep because she was worried. And I wanted a book for her. And I wanted to just take her along because she might be afraid to go to a 12-step meeting. She might be afraid to reach out to a spiritual director or a priest. And I took her along. We went to 12-step meetings and we went to the dark side of things sometimes. And we um, went to counseling together. And I just told stories of what it had been like and what I learned and what each step tries to get us to address and heal. And then I talked about the principles of Ignatian spirituality that went alongside each of those 12 steps. So that's that's how the book is formatted. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you um, talked about, you know, the mom that you took along with you, because uh, in all my research on the book, I never wrote the, <laughs> the thing that you're always supposed to do is take is, you know, who's your person that you are writing for and mm -hmm. almost personify this idea of who you're writing for and, and take them on the journey because you're not really writing for yourself. You're writing for, for somebody else, um, for them to take it. And I appreciate you writing for other moms that are going through the same things or similar things that you're going through, because I think being a mom can be some of the loneliest times, the loneliest years, especially when you, your kids just aren't like everybody else, you know, are not doing right. the same things that everybody else is doing at the same time. And, you know, you see 20 people, you know, going along this journey, that seems the way it's supposed to be. And then your journey is like taking a whole nother road. And it's hard to understand that and to not think that you are alone in that process. So you're really giving people the opportunity to know that they're not the only ones experiencing this. Right. Right. Yes. Um, but I mean, there's there's a beauty in being on your own path, you know, that I can see now that I couldn't see then. And, and I'm not saying, you know, I would wish an addiction on anyone or any hardship, but there is beauty in some of those hard places that really help create in you a more authentic person and a more authentic relationship with God that is just so valuable. And if you can just hang on, you know, when you're alone, I think it, it pays off in the end. Yeah. And authenticity is such an important thing in order to kind of work on these things that keep us from really good relationships with one another, right? It's this showing up, letting that shadow self be hidden and showing up as you think other people want you to be. When really the person you're talking to probably just is having just as hard a time in some areas you are and just wishes you would bring it up and just let them see your mess so that you could, they could feel that connection with you. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Every time I've been approached by somebody and for whatever reason, I'll get a feeling that maybe I should share my story. There's never been one time when I got that feeling that they didn't need to hear it. Not been one time, you know, the walls come down when you when you share yourself with somebody else that's struggling and uh, connection occurs and that's when healing occurs well and it's great that 
by putting these ideas down uh, in a book, you don't know how many people are connecting with you now, but hopefully the people that need to read your book are finding it. Um, really, we all could benefit from reading and <laughs> going through a process um, that this book goes through. But that gives you the, just such a wider breadth of people to hopefully find find what they need on the pages of your book. Right, right. Well, that's the goal. The big dream, the big dream is to kind of sh- chip away at that stigma. So, yeah. No, that, and I think I think I think people are doing that, right? But it takes right. just more people um, being brave enough to put their stories out there. So, how do you keep uh, internalizing, or how do you help yourself internalize this idea that you're loved as you are? Are there any things, you know, regular practices and things that kind of help you keep yourself grounded in that truth? You know, I I sponsor people a lot. I'm sponsoring a young lady right now, and um, met with her to sponsor several people, but this one young lady just, it was just a reminder to me to see, you know, how I was in the beginning. You know, we all start out so kind of battered by life just to see somebody grasp onto hope. I mean, that that's just the most wonderful gift you'll ever get. Ignatian spirituality kind of ends up with the being men and women for others. And the 12th step is, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we practice these principles in all our affairs. And so they're both about, you know, it doesn't end. You don't get what you need and stop. Uh, You were given a hand up and you offer that forward now. And it keeps you in the loop of that, you know, eternal exchange of love that we talk about. So... Yeah, I mean, every time that you listen to someone else's story, I think it probably helps you know yourself and your own story that much better. Yeah, yeah. You can see yourself a lot of times in people, you know, and think, oh, thank goodness, you know, I'm not in this spot anymore. You know, I'm I'm glad I had to face this problem. So, yeah, I mean, that reminds me of how Ignatius always said that There are times of consolation, you know, when you're in a Mm -hmm. good relationship with one another and you're joyful and you feel connected and everything is working out. And then times of desolation where you feel distant from people and and things are disconnected, things aren't going well, you feel distant from God. And that in times of desolation is not when you should make a plan or big changes, but in times of consolation, that's when you kind of set yourself up for the next period of desolation. And it seems like through the work that you've done, you both recognize that there will be other desolate times in different ways ahead because that's just part of being human. But you've set set a plan for yourself and your family for what to do in those cases. So, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the one of the things that, you know, my three adult children now, my son's been in recovery eight years. And uh, one of the things that I learned about all three of my adult children is that they all see a counselor. And I've never been so proud in all my life because they're they're choosing a healthy way to get help. And I always tell people, you know, I see the dentist and I see the and I see an endocrinologist and, you know, I have all this variety of doctors. Why wouldn't I see somebody about my emotional health too? I mean, that makes no sense that we, we think there's something wrong with, with doing that. And so I'm really proud of that they're doing that. 
Yeah. And I think sometimes in the church, it would be, you know, growing up, it would be like, well, if you have an issue that's an emotional one, then you go to the church, right? You you get help in, in that regard. So I think it's also important to note that there's a both and situation yes. where there are yes. things that a spiritual director and church and prayer and interaction can do. And then there are these people that God gifted with the talent to become mental health professionals, you know, and, and God is a part of that too, but they have the skills and talents to be able to do the other part of it. It doesn't have to be an either or, but a both and situation. Right. Now I have a spiritual director and a counselor and I go to retreats and I work a 12 step program and the ands keep going because why not take advantage of everything we possibly can. The more that we reflect on ourselves, the more different expert opinions that you have, the the more of a kind of fully formed human being we can become. Right? The better you are for your family. Yes. And yourself. <laughs> So one of the questions I ask all of my guests, and and maybe we've touched on it, but is there anything that you think makes it challenging for people, particularly right now in 2023, to understand their belovedness, to be able to ask for help when they need it? I mean, you've said already that the stigma of alcoholism and addiction and, and drug addiction all sorts of addictions. But is there anything else that that kind of contributes to that that challenge? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. Let me just start by saying I have this little, I have this theory about what addiction is. And it's based on what the 12 steps and Ignatian spirituality do. And I always say that addiction is dis-ease, you know, dis-ease, disorder, and disconnection in our relationships to God, self, and others. And so this generation of, of young people, you know, who date online and who text each other in the same room, you know, who aren't as connected, kinesthetic way, like I was growing up, playing on the playground, you know, without a device in my hand. I think that the lack of connection is going to put up an extra obstacle for them to being loved as they are. Because the 12 steps restore order between God and and restore order even within and restore ease, which I am loved, I'm enough as I am. Those two things allow connection. You know, it's kind of the end result of those first two things. So, so yeah, I think the lack of of connection is going to be a big obstacle. Yeah. I I like that idea of restoring ease because I think that is... You know, a lot of things that stand in the way between connections with other people is this trepidation that they may not, I may say something wrong or they may not like, you know, the way I look or the way I act or the way I talk. And I think it's really easy for us before devices and in social media, as well as with, I think, you know, I had those issues when I was a child. I see them now. It's just that they're electronic now, but that idea that I don't know if other people like me as I am. So how can I like myself? as I am. So yeah, and I think it comes from that being the message that we offer young people, but we also offer ourselves that the God that I believe in, and I think you believe in is one that always is looking at us and smiling and seeing nothing but pride and joy for the person that they created just as just as we are. And that doesn't mean that we don't have to then do something good with that. But it, the love isn't predicated on whether or not we succeed in right. doing something good with it. So. Right. It's not transactional. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I do remember feeling that way as a kid, like there was a mark marking pad that God had every time that I messed up and then confession wipes away all the marks and then you go and make some more marks. And right. so <laughs> it definitely felt like that idea that, oh, like I, I'm going to have a mark on me like two seconds out of one. So that that feeling didn't really predicate the love design. Right. right. I, I think that God hates it when we fall short because he knows it hurts us. So that switched as I had a healthier image of God. It became less about punishing and more about, oh, he loves me that much that he knows it's going to hurt me. And he doesn't like that. Yeah. And in my imagining, God's right there with us. So at the hurts that we experience, it's it's not just, it's such an empathetic response that God feels it too. And that is what God wants to avoid with us, right? That pain that um, is so tangible that that God experiences it right alongside of us. Well, Jean, this has been a wonderful conversation. And I think we've talked about your book so much. People have to know that they can get it (laughs) on Amazon and on your website. And it's through Loyola Press as well. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just such a credible resource. This is something that more people need to talk about. And, and you really are blazing that trail, which is is so important. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for being vulnerable enough to share your experience with Thanks others. Thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure this will not be the last conversation we'll have about writing or being loved as you are. <laughs> All the wonderful things you do. Because Jean and I also both write for Into the Deep and we interact with Ignatian Ministries. So right. we both have that that connection as well. So you can find us there. So <laughs> thank you again, Jean. And I look forward to the next time we talk about being loved as you are. Thanks. this conversation with Jean as much as I did. I especially love talking with her about the importance of being able to connect conversations of mental health, addiction, suicide, and more with faith, especially to help people know that they are not alone and so very deeply loved. Do you think you or someone you know has a story about being loved as you are that would fit with this podcast? Please reach out to me and let me know by emailing me at lovedasyouarepod at gmail.com. You can find out more about Jean by checking her website, linked in the show notes. I have another exciting guest coming your way very soon. But for now, remember to be who you are, because that is exactly who God wants you to be.